0: To the Renaissance, boys and girls, episode one hundred and thirty-eight. Our first Renaissance for twenty twenty-two. Raymond Harris. uh, Yeah,
1: off air. I was just
0: saying to Ray that it's been we've been recording together for what eight nine years, and he still hasn't shaved his head and gone the full Bruce Willis. So he's still got this fluff thing happening up here. I'm very disappointed. I've been trying to get him to shave it.
1: I'm holding on to it. It's it's like a reverse mohawk. Uh, I'll let you know uh, if I do anything different, so thanks.
0: Our guest today, who is patiently sitting through our nonsense, has uh, worked as a refugee (laughs) affairs officer for the United Nations, which is where we'll end up, refugees, the way we're going. Helps, it'll be handy to have him on our speed dial. Helped with programs in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, undertaken Peace Corps work in Yemen. Didn't didn't obviously work. They uh, need to go back and finish that job, I think. He's also written extensively for many national publications, The Smithsonian, The Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe, American Scholar, Wilson Quarterly, BBC Magazine, and The London Times. He also worked at The Atlantic in a range wow. of roles, including as the managing editor. Today he serves part-time as a senior editor for the Harvard Business Review, Edits books for writers and is himself a writer of two wonderful history books, the fourth part of the world and the one that we're going to talk to him about today, Da Vinci's Ghost, which is about Leonardo's Vitruvian Man. Welcome to our little podcast podcast mr toby lester it's a pleasure thanks for having me well don't Absolutely. you don't know that that it will be a pleasure yet let's, <laughs> let's not get let's ahead of ourselves to toby. the end yeah, and then you the end, yeah whether or not it was a pleasure <laughs> <laughs> could, could go horribly wrong from here don't be honest we've never been honest with each other in eight years you know, reason to start now right <laughs> So Toby, um, first of all, thank you for coming on the show, and, and thank you for the book. Yes. Uh, we we love the book, as, as you're aware. We've we've done um, episodes on the Vitruvian Man, and, and your book was one of our sources for that, which was very useful. Um, so let's. I, I, I'm interested starting off by knowing what prompted you to write a book about the Vitruvian Man. Writing a book is a serious endeavour. I've written a couple. Takes a lot of time and energy. And uh, if your family's anything like mine, you, every day you have to answer the question, Have you finished that bloody book yet? And I'm like, No. I'm and they're like, How much money are you going to make out of this? And I'm like, Probably nothing. But, uh, you know, that's not the <laughs> that's point. Not point. That's not why we exactly. do creative endeavors. We do it. Right, because, I don't know, we're trying to avoid spending time with our families or something like that. So what what uh, prompted you to dedicate
2: a, a large chunk of your life to the Vitruvian man? Uh, well, it, it was a large chunk of my life. It was about two years, uh, and but it was an outgrowth of a previous book, which probably happens a lot. You probably have talked to other people, who, and maybe that happened to you. Um, but the, my first book was all about um, conceptions of the world and the cosmos before... Uh, the voyages of Columbus and others who before people understood what the whole world looked like. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time looking at medieval maps of the world, early Renaissance maps of the world. Um, And I kept on seeing maps that in a weird way kind of corresponded to what I knew Vitruvian man looked like, you know, basically a figure inscribed in definitely a circle, the sphere of the earth, but often that, that circle was then encased in a square as well. And it just seemed a very interesting echo. And so I went down a rabbit hole with that <laughs> while I was writing the first book, um, which was very interesting, but unrelated. And I eventually had to just let it go. But when I started thinking about a second book, I decided to explore that a bit more. And um, it, you know, the basic idea, I guess, for the book at the beginning was here's this image that everybody knows, right. you know, it's just, it's, 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 it's just, it's one of the, it's probably the world's most famous drawing. Um, and everybody tends to think of it as just something that popped into Leonardo's head and out it came and it was great. Uh, but the, what I had been seeing in the research I was doing on the mapping book. And then as I began to look into this as its own book idea was that it, it, it there were all sorts of precedents for it. And there was, you know, there was a context, which, you know, is always the case. Right. Um, and it got really interesting and it, it seemed in the end like there was enough of a there, there, to, and, and what, what really got me interested was that after I had explored it for a while, I kept on looking for somebody who'd written a book about Vitruvian man to find right. out and nobody had. That was my next weird. question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we're glad no, you I mean, did.
1: Yeah. We're glad you wrote it.
2: Yeah there there are there are you know scholarly articles about it here and there but you know surprisingly little and in part that's because it's kind of hard to write about it just it's just this object in leonardo's corpus of work that right. sort of stands apart anomalously you know, it's not a part of any notebook it, it's history is hard to make you know, its actual physical history mm-hmm. is hard to trace so you have to the only way you can write a book about it is if you kind of back up and really do kind t- of take in the, the deep context.
1: We agree so with that. Good. Good. Yeah can, can you ahead.
0: can you explain to me then um, what was the relationship between the similar images in the maps and Leonardo's drawing? What
2: what, what conclusions did you come to? Uh, a lot. I mean, it's a, that, that's a, a layered. Um, subject. Uh, so the where where to start with this? There, there is a much talked about um, a- area of interest in in classical writing and in medieval Christian writing and in Islamic writing, mm-hmm. where everybody's relating the microcosm and the macrocosm, and the idea is that you know there's there's this universe. That is everything and it, it is designed by a god according to all sorts of principles of perfect design and then there's a there, the human form is a kind of microcosmic version of that and it contains all of the potential and design principles right. uh, of the universe in tiny form and you know the very very human centric view, of, but you know just as the universe is perfect, humans are perfect, and
1: mm-hmm.
2: and then there are all sorts of ramifications that go in in all these different directions. You know, the Vitruvian man is called Vitruvian man because the architect, the Roman architect Vitruvius, described how you can lay a man out on his back with his arms outstretched, and he'll um, fit in a circle and in a square. And he was doing that largely because he was trying to talk about how to design temples, which were, you know, the place where you could bring the macrocosm and the microcosm together. And temples had to be designed with the principles um, of the human form because that corresponded to the macrocosm and the perfect principles of design of the universe. Um, But then, so, so at one level, Leonardo was thinking about architecture, which almost nobody really imagines when they look at this image now. I mean, you see it on the Euro, and you see it as a signifier of just, like, creativity and science and art and the Renaissance. Um, But, you know, Leonardo, at that stage in his life, he drew the picture Everybody Thinks in 1490. And at that stage in his life, he was thinking a lot about architecture. And so Mm -hmm. he was trying to read Vitruvius. um, And he was talking to people who were thinking about Vitruvius, and everybody was thinking about how you you can see a lot of renaissance drawings from the time where um people are inscribing the human form inside of churches and you you know you think of the layout of a cathedral and it's you know there's kind of the head at the top and the body and then the two arms so there's all that um that image is also a study of human proportions very Mm -hmm. deliberately Mm-hmm. You can see if you look at it carefully. You see lots of straight lines that he's drawn, you know, from from here to here on the arm, or parts of the face. And those are some of those are referring specifically to proportions that Vitruvius said exist in the in the perfect Vitruvian man. Some of them actually have nothing to do with the Vitruvius right. and are um, measurements that he at, in those years was gathering himself. He, he spent. Must have been hours and hours and hours studying models and coming, you know, taking down everybody's proportions and then presumably oh. coming up with what he felt was oh. the ideal set of proportions. Oh. Right. Um, the unbelievable amount of work. I mean, it was such a sacrifice to
0: him to have to look at naked men or young boys like yeah.
2: all day long yeah, and you know, study
0: their proportions and get down <laughs> with his measuring tape. Yeah.
1: Oh. Let me get my, yeah, let me get my measuring tape. Yeah. Can, can, can I ask a, a quick question based off something that you just said? Because um, we, we've talked about ad nauseum, we've talked ad nauseum about how Leonardo got the idea uh, and I'm not saying he's the only one, but he got the idea that everything is connected. Everything in the universe is connected. Everything is an example of everything else because they're built with the same material, roughly, and they're built on the, along the same laws. So everything in the universe, kind of, you know, it makes sense if you if you understand if you understand the, the workings of the universe, you'll get the, the the planet, you'll get the human body. But what I wanted to ask was, and this was just me being semi irreverent or flippant, but you said in one interview. Uh, No temple can be put together and expected to last or do a very good job unless it's built like a well-shaped man, which is what you were saying a, a second ago. The body is a microcosm. The temple has to be like the body in order to have a direct line to heaven. If you're a religious person, I get that. That actually makes sense. But I just wanted to be irreverent for a second because I have four daughters and say, why does it have to be along the lines of a well-proportioned man? Why can't it be along the lines of a well-proportioned woman? Was it just the um, the sexism that existed that still exists today? Was it just men thinking along the line? Because the men are the only ones doing the writing and the talking and the thinking about this kind of thing. Or are they just thinking... Well there's no way it could be based off a woman it has to be based off a man. Did did you get any sense of any kind of sexism or that's just the way it was because men ruled the world and of course it would be based on a man's body and not a woman's body.
2: I I think it occurred to me for sure and mm-hmm. and there actually are um you know nice modern drawings of Vitruvian women out there if you google for a while. Okay um, I haven't. but right. the I'm sh- I'm sure it's simply that the, the the people who are writing about these things were made right. there is really? there's one I think I quoted in the book at some point. There is one manual on proportions that um probably Leonardo would have seen. I mean I think it's maybe like a fourteenth century manual. Mm-hmm. It's like an artist's manual. And in there in it it says specifically um you know these you know, we use the proportions of men because women don't have proportions. <laughs> you know, I think the the idea of, at least that there's yeah. no one single ideal that corresponds to something universal. I got you. All right. Um, So, yeah, but it's, it's it's fun. (laughs) It's fun to imagine if somebody else had been in charge of the writing.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So, so to sum up women don't have, they're not very smart. They're not hard workers. They don't have a soul. You can't trust them. And now they have no proportions. Okay. Just wanted to make sure we rounded out that list.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean exactly.
1: I, 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 obviously kind of
0: yeah I mean it was kind of different too from Vitruvius's time uh, pre-Christianity to Leonardo's time mm-hmm. with the role of Adam and Eve and the whole Catholic dogma and that kind of stuff but her fault. Right. And, and we and we know that yeah, Leonardo didn't really like uh, women's bodies. He, he not a lot of drawings of female anatomy in um, his notebooks. It's like ew, girly parts. yeah. like doing portraits Although of them, did.
2: but not the, the yeah. Naked. He, he did a few pretty pretty graphic ones though. Yeah, yeah. but
0: not very anatomically uh, correct either. We've talked about. His, uh one drawing of a uh, lady's nether regions, and uh, it looks like a horror picture when he draw, draws it. Yeah. <laughs> it's very scary. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you mentioned before when you look at Vitruvian Man close up. Now, you have seen it far more closely upperly than uh, <laughs> most of us ever will. Ever. Yes. yes. <laughs> Although we, we do we do plan on figuring out how to yeah. wiggle our way in. in, we're gonna we're gonna go and yep. say, listen, Toby Lester wrote a book, but let's be honest, <laughs> we can do a better job. No, give us no. give us a look, give us a look, if you don't mind. Tell us about uh, when you when you got up close and personal with the Truvian man.
2: Well, there's there's more of a story here than probably you even know. Um, so, I mean, in order, I guess. The first thing to know is that it's not on public display, which has always struck me as strange, given how right. famous it is. It's 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 kept um, in uh, the academia in Venice, mm. and it's kept in a special room, in a special drawer, in a special case, and right. it's hauled out every once in a while for an exhibit. For the but for the most part, it's just you know in a climate controlled room in a filing cabinet, not seeing the light of day. Right. Um, and in order to see it, you have to go through. Many many hoops, um, you know, m- some of which are, you know, deliciously but incredibly frustratingly Italian. <laughs> um, but and and so you know, I had, I had to prove to them that I was a published author and that I was, not, I was a credible published author with some, you know, expertise in the in the realm, and then I had to do all of this in direct con- uh, communication with the the woman who was in charge of the prints and engravings she didn't speak English. I didn't speak Italian, but you know, we both sent emails to each other that we we could figure it out what we were saying. And and so we had this exchange and I sent her my previous book and, you know, eventually she agreed that it would be okay for me to come. And so we then continued and we, we negotiated, you know, and I forget what the date was, but you know, we agreed that I would come on May 5th and we would meet in the lobby of uh, the academia and she would take me to see the picture. So I made plans. I went over nice. and spent some time in Florence and did some research in Florence and then went and then um, on the appointed day in Venice, shambled over there and <laughs> walked into the lobby and there's a whole lot of like banging and noise and dust. And there's one guy sitting at the desk and I went up to him and sort of fumbled through the little introduction and asked for her. And he right. looked at me blankly and, Said she's not here, oh, and uh, and I said, but no, no, I have an appointment, <laughs> and I showed him the little email, and he's like, no, no, she's not here, oh. and I, 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 you know, again, the language barrier inserted itself. Eventually, he got on a phone and got her, mm-hmm. and she, and then remember, she still doesn't speak <laughs> <so> English, <we're> still, <laughs> um, but she kept on saying, no, 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 possible, no possible, and. To make a long story short, right. They were um, they had decided to, to do a renovation and in the course of the renovation they decided to remove everything from the museum in oh. order that, that was on that was in storage in order to facilitate the renovation and she was in another building eventually mm-hmm. she had to come over to the other building and I found her and um, you know in our broken way of communicating she just basically said, "Yeah, sorry, another time." Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> i well maybe next time
2: i don't so, know so i could there was nothing i could do i went home and and um uh did more work and eventually managed to engineer another trip which involved going to Windsor castle and looking at other leonardos mm. um, you know horrible thing to have to do uh and mm. i tacked on a trip to venice there and that mm. time she was with me and i got to see it so now i can actually talk about what it looked nice. like um right uh and it was it was a treat and it was mm-hmm. a treat because e- even though it's a drawing it's it it really pops out as three-dimensional I mean, mm-hmm. The I, there are a couple of illustrations in the book where i tried to give you a sense of that but it, it he um you know the when you look at it carefully you can see that he used a compass and and there are holes in the paper that pricked through so you can hold it up and you can see the light coming through the holes right he clearly was thinking pretty carefully about this picture and how how um how how it was going to um sit on the page Mm -hmm. um where he traced it seems like he drew it originally in pencil and then he inked over the pencil and when he inked it pressed stylus down hard and it engraved the lines in the page so when when Um, you see his toes um you know basically carved out of the paper they they kind of stand out it's it's really it's quite a treat to look at i found it if it seemed bigger than what i was imagining i mean it's only it's on a it's a piece of paper that's not much bigger than a regular 8x11 piece of paper right Um, still but, so, you know, you you, yeah. you often you see it on the euro coin, or you see it on a little, you know, like a Skylab logo or something, and it mm-hmm. seems very small, right? But it's big, yeah. And- um, and when,
0: you, when you stole the original and replaced it with a replica <laughs> a Nicholas Cage. You knew. Were uh, you wearing a turtleneck? Did you wear a black turtleneck? <laughs> Sorry, Cam. Sorry, go ahead. Did that thought ever cross your mind? Because I'm pretty sure it would cross my mind. I'd be like,
2: what are my odds of getting away with this? You know? of, course, of course it crossed my mind. But he was like a dragon in the lair. There, were, there, was, right. there was no oh. – no, nobody was doing yes. anything in there. Ninja uh, star.
1: Yeah. Uh, So Tony, my question to you is based off everything you just said, can I, or can I not use your name as a reference to get in, to see the (laughs) Petruvian Man? It sounds like it could go either way. I don't know. You tell me. I'd I'd love to find out, you know? Okay. um, I will try it and I will report back to you.
0: We had had Curtis Wong on the show uh, a few months ago. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but, He's the guy that uh, worked with Bill Gates to translate the uh, Mm -hmm. Leicester uh, Codex and um, he has had the opportunity to see uh, lots of Leonardo's, uh, you know, hidden stuff up close and personal, Mm -hmm. notebooks mostly. Mm -hmm. And he he talks about it like it was an almost mystical experience to be able to see in person Leonardo's fingerprints on a piece of paper and uh, yeah. the, you know he's think like 500 years ago Leonardo sat and drew this I mean uh, I don't want yeah.
2: to overdo it but did, did, did you feel any sense of
0: um, or I,
2: I definitely I definitely felt that and it you know it's a it's a funny picture because it's it's much more carefully done than a lot of what you see in his notebooks. I mean, his notebooks, he was scribbling as a way of thinking, you know, and it was, um, and it was, there was free association and he would do things fast. And sometimes, you know, there would be these beautifully careful pictures, but at other times, you know, he just, he he had an idea or he like, you know, he's trying to catch a butterfly or something. And so the, the Vitruvian man picture is, it's anomalous because it, You know, Mm -hmm. he was was preparing it carefully for something and nobody nobody really knows what it was. And my theory is that he, you know, he may have been coming up with it as a kind of page to present uh, maybe to the Duke of Milan as a possible opening image for an edition of Vitruvius or maybe for, you know, his own maybe one of his own works on human human proportion or something. His notebooks are full of these plans for books that he <laughs> yeah. intended to, you know, produce on mm. the human body mm. and on mm. sculpture mm. and all, the, all these other things. Mm. So maybe it was something like that. I mean, it does seem almost like he was preparing it as a model for something that could be printed,
0: mm-hmm. um, right.
2: which is not the case with a lot of his other
0: drawings. Mm. Like if he could just finish something, he would have uh, produced <laughs> many wonderful books. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I often refer to him as yeah. the laziest genius in uh, human history. Um, <laughs> well, and, no,
2: and there's nothing like, like having a deadline for painting to make you incredibly productive in other areas. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and then yes. he goes and does yeah.
0: two yeah. paintings of the Madonna on the rocks, the Virgin on the rocks. Like, really? We only needed one. Right. He got forced into doing two. <laughs> um, you mentioned that the Vitruvian man is in Venice. It's not in Milan. How
2: did that happen? Was there a war? No, I'm just joking.
0: No, Sorry, I ahead. mean, it, it,
2: it disappears, um, you know, it, it, it seems like it was still, it was in his collection of stuff and when he died, and then mm-hmm. um, for a while all of his stuff was together, but then the person who he left everything to died in his heirs, just, you know, weren't attentive and sold some of it, and it, it got dispersed. And you know, right. in the historical record, there's no reference to it from the 1500s until the 1700s. It just disappeared. Wow. And you know, that's that alone is interesting because we think of it now as you know, like a you know, a defining image. Nobody mm. nobody seems to care much uh, after the 1500s. There seemed like there were you know, people thinking about it and copying it a bit in the 1500s, right? In the early 1500s, but um, you know, it, and then in the I think maybe maybe 1770s. It resurfaces in in um, the collection of somebody in Venice, and they own it for a while, and eventually it gets negotiated that it gets given to the museum. Um, and even then, it's not like suddenly everybody's talking about it. it. As far as I could tell, and I did I tried to chase this down um, hmm. quite a lot, but there was a, a book in the in the nineteen fifties called The Art of the Nude that was published by Kenneth Clark, famous art historian. And if you do, if you, you know that a trick you can do on Google Ngram, where you can put in a word and it will tell you the frequency of the use of the word in a given year?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. If, you, if you do Vitruvian Man, mm-hmm, it, right. you know, it's just flatlines until the year that that book is published and then it just hmm. jumps up and ah. it stays up. So you know there's something mm-hmm. about how it just got injected into the popular culture at that moment mm-hmm. that was perfect.
1: Well let me ask real quick I'm sorry Cam uh, based on what you just said it's like no one knows about it suddenly we find out about it and then there's a lot of interest in it which makes sense cuz it's a pretty remarkable drawing I get all that but it, based on your research when Leo draws when Leonardo draws it do you do, do you get a sense that he figured out that he did something pretty amazing or was it just an intellectual exercise from the ancient times and he drew it and he put it away and because he's how many times when we were doing when we've done the shows leo will figure something out and go okay and then just move on to the next thing as opposed to either trying to publish a book or make a ton of money he's just curious so when it comes to the vitruvian man do you get a sense that he went wow this uh, even for me this is pretty amazing or did was it just one of the many things that he did in his life
2: uh, who knows my my, well, my, my my guess my guess is probably he didn't give it a whole lot of thought i mean it, right it it's is staggering it's interesting because he clearly took more care than he did with many other drawings that survive mm-hmm. in that, he, right you know created this i guess you could call it a presentation copy or something of it so that's interesting but gotcha you know in in a lot of ways it's a mm-hmm. kind of a for for him, it's the end mm-hmm. of a period of his thinking about and illustrating the human form that he kind of moved away from. You know, he, after yeah. that, he got into a lot of anatomical studies that were much more accurate. I mean, this this guy, the Vitruvian Man, is really interesting and looks great and it's a really appealing image. But it's you know, from an anatomical perspective, what he went on to do yeah. after doing the various dissections and things that he did and those studies of. Mm-hmm. You know the old man and the, and the, all these kind of cross sections of the body and right. bits of the body turning. Those are you know in you know in in some senses way more remarkable. I mean, Victorian the, wow. the Man, in yeah. a way is it's kind of a retrograde image. And that, I mean that's what to me what's so interesting about it is it it shows him like you know straddling some some old medieval conceptions of you know proportion and this idea of the macrocosm and the microcosm and mm-hmm. um and actually I mean, this relates this is one of the reasons i found it so interesting and why it seemed related to what i was writing about in the first book mm-hmm. first book was about early maps of the world and how a lot of those maps um we we, we don't know what to bring to them and they, they were showing many right. things simultaneously that we don't know how to read now and i feel like mm-hmm. that's the case with with Truvian man. It's a single image, but he's he's sort of trying to map onto that image all of these old conceptions of human proportions and these ideas of the microcosm and these you know a certain amount of Christian imagery, right. And at the same time, he's injecting these proportions that he's been exploring that don't correspond. <laughs> right um, And he figured out a way, if you look at the picture, there's a circle and then there's a square. There are precedents. People tried to draw a Vitruvian Man before him, but they always put the circle right inside the square. If you do ah, that, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't work because that means that the navel has to be at the center of both of those shapes, and it just doesn't work. But he figured right. out, or maybe one of his collaborators did, that mm. if you drop the square down so that it comes to the top of the head, then right. you can make the guy fit in the circle and the square and have the navel be at the center of the circle, and every, everything works. So that's kind of cool, but it so it it just feels to me like he he's doing what a lot of medieval mappers were doing at the time, or like Renaissance mappers were doing at the time, which was mm-hmm. you know, taking, for example, taking the maps of the ancient world that Ptolemy had produced, right, and adding these n- discoveries of the new world and the discoveries of China and Africa, stuff that hadn't been on those old maps, mm-hmm. and throwing it all together. And when you look at, um, I don't know if you're familiar with those Ptolemaic maps, but they, Ptolemy mapped, you know, the known world as the Greeks and the Romans knew it. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty good, but at the mm-hmm. margins it gets bad, and there are all sorts of things that are wrong. And right. those maps were in wide circulation at the time Columbus was sailing around, and people just tacked on these parts of the world that were new. Right, without changing the old stuff, and it was because when you wanted to look at a map of the world in a classroom, you had to be able to teach all of the old stuff, which had all the names that were in the Iliad and the Odyssey and the, and the classical poetry. Right, and at the same, and, and you had to convey the idea that the ancients knew a lot. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you had to say, you know, we modern people are building on that and adding to it. And so, mm-hmm. I, I think there's something similar going on. And in fact. Leonardo talks about how he wants to do a kind of uh, Ptolemy style map of the human body. And wow. I don't think Vitruvian man represents that, but I think that, that like the idea is there. Sort of combining. Right. The, the, you have to look at these things as um, very textured, both in terms of space and time.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. right. right. That makes sense. Yeah. Getting. Can't going.
0: Right, Go Yeah. Uh, going. I, I want to, Go back to what we were talking about before, before Ray took us down a completely different rabbit hole, as he does. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Uh, it's my job. It's yeah. my job. <laughs> we were talking about the uh, 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 the impact that seeing this in person had on you. And, and mm. the, the closest thing I can connect it to is having been to Florence a number of times and gone to see the Mona Lisa and uh you know the way that uh, or, or where in Paris the Mona Lisa is Paris the Mona Lisa, and and knowing that the deep, deep spiritual connection that most people have when they see it, which isn 't in fact looking at the Mona Lisa but it 's getting a selfie of themselves with the Mona Lisa <laughs> behind them. I kind is that of important? I kind of imagine you in Venice going no I don't want to see it I just want to get a <laughs> selfie uh, is this that is was that your in instinct too is, in tribune, I got to get a selfie with this it, you know
2: looking it, at well, it's not the know, important was, thing I probably well, made the visit in 2010 I I wonder if I even had a Cell phone at that point. Oh. I must have must have had some kind. I mean, I, I'm sure I had a cell phone, but did I have a, an Apple iPhone that could have taken a picture? Probably not. No, and right. Light to the, that. the the Dragon Lady wouldn't have allowed it anyway. Um, Do you want us to take she you was, back? He was very stern. <laughs> right,
0: but in uh, you know, in, in, in a more serious note, um, you know, when we were in uh, Paris the last time, in what was that right? 2018, two? I think. Um, so, yeah. yeah, two. What? No, go uh, ahead.
1: I was saying two years, but no, that was COVID, so go ahead.
0: Yes, yeah, pre-COVID. Um, I remember our tour guide telling us the wonderful story, which I'd never heard before, <laughs> about how the Mona Lisa <laughs> was kind of just a painting on a wall until it was stolen at, right. early in the 20th century, and then it became famous. And, you know, and, and you talked about how Vitruvian Man was sort of not really... Um, appreciated like it is today until um, that book came out you know and, and it, it, it always makes me um, uh, it's, it's always a profound thought to think that Leonardo today we think of as probably the greatest genius who ever lived or if not the then certainly one of them he's Admired by you know the likes of Bill Gates, who you know, and and uh, you know some of our great thinkers and doers today. Many of most of them, all of them, probably. In his in his own time, he was famous uh, and and thought of, according to contemporaries, as the greatest painter and architect and sculptor and scientific thinker of his time. Uh, Vasari, writing a generation later considered him the greatest, (laughs) you know, his opening, uh, you know, in his lives, uh, his life of Leonardo, he talks about, you know, uh, how rare it is that God would uh, uh, bestow upon a single individual all of these gifts and also he's handsome and he's eloquent and everyone loves him and he's the man of the people and all this kind of stuff. And yet, and yet, as you say, (laughs) You know his notebooks just kind of eh, for people like what and it disappears. Vitruvian Man disappears. The Mona Lisa wasn't considered like as a, as a, any sort of creator. And you know we like to think that we're doing good work, but when you think Leonardo mm-hmm. da Vinci was forgotten for hundreds of years, or his work was classified as unimportant for hundreds, years, and, and even post the Renaissance, like this is you know during the 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 centuries where we're apparently caring about the humanities and the arts and the sciences again and even then he's kind of just a uh, bynote in history for hundreds of years it, it, it puts puts things into perspective i think you can go look even the greatest genius in history Humbley. no one really cared about after he died for a long time anyway well and,
2: yeah. and and you know he had different objectives than you can than you kind of want him to have had you know like he he really he seemed to care a lot about you know how the world would receive his paintings but so much of what he was doing in the notebooks was his way of figuring out how he was going to do his paintings and I mean it feels to me really like all of his science he he, of course he was just utterly devoted to figuring things out and he was fascinated by everything and he you know everything he just you know clearly saw connections that other people didn't see Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like he was doing that so that he could you know, publish a textbook that would then tell the world everything it needed to know about, you know, the things he was discovering. It was more like, if I'm really going to paint well, and he had all sorts of ideas about painting as the highest art, right? then, you know, I can't paint the Mona Lisa if I can't paint the perfect smile, and I can't paint the perfect smile unless I understand how every single muscle in the face works. And I can't do that unless I start to understand the forces that are involved in tension. And mm. if I'm going to be thinking about muscles and tension, then I have to think about blood that's supporting it, and then I have to think about hydraulics. And you know, like, and right. it sounds like I'm making a parody of it, but that's no, exactly I, uh,
1: my <laughs> exactly. eyes crossed. But, he, but you're right; you're exactly right. I mean, that's in order to be the best, you have to know these things, learn. And, these
0: things. and the, the the analogy that I've been playing around with, you know, we, we, we make fun of the fact that he only completed maybe 20 paintings that we know of in his lifetime, um, maybe 21 if you consider the Salvatore Mundi, real Leonardo. But I, I'm thinking about him as the, he was the Quentin Tarantino of Renaissance <laughs> painters. You know, Quentin has said, I'm only going to make 10 films, going to be 10 perfect <laughs> films, then I'm going to yes, finish. Leave me alone. Yeah, I'm just well. going to have the, you know, Leonardo was like, i got to do 20 perfect paintings, that's it. No need to, like, you know, be a Picasso and do 50,000. 20, perfect, and I'm out, you know.
2: I'm out. Done. Done. It it would, you know, it would be so interesting to be able to be a fly on the wall. I mean, because he had to to deal with all the routine, mundane stuff of supporting himself and, you know, supplying paintings on demand and not wanting to do, you know, what people expected of him when they commissioned Mm. this or that you know standard image was not something dramatically different it was just like a really good artist doing what they expected Mm. and he he had something else in mind and Mm. um how he struggled with those daily things is that's part of what's fun about the notebooks is you can see a lot of that and you can see him also you know just like he was good at some things he wasn't good at other things he didn't know how to he he wasn't well educated. He had to teach himself Latin. There, there are mm. places in the notebooks where he's doing, doing like schoolboy Latin. Mm. Um, right. And yeah. so, you know, apparently he wasn't very good at math mm-hmm. and, you know, without math, he couldn't, there were some texts that he couldn't read. And, you know, without Latin, there was a lot that was inaccessible to him. So mm-hmm. you see him making lots of notes about asking this master about this and that master about that. He must've mm-hmm. been not only a really interesting guy to spend time with, but actually, you know, Possibly really tiresome, mm. Mm. like just incessantly badgering you for information mm. um, <laughs> mm.
1: can, can I ask related on what you just said so here 's Leonardo going, I want to be the best painter I can be, so i 'm going to learn all these things because it will it will come across when i when I do the various paintings that i 'm going to do, but I did want to ask um, and we touched on this in the podcast from the beginning of the Renaissance. Um, and I'm I loose terms, uh, beginning of the Renaissance until the end, or at least the end of the early high Renaissance, um, we talked about how artists at the beginning were considered just like workers. Hey, you, you're like a mm-hmm. plumber or a whatever. Go fi- go paint that something on my house. I want you to come through the back entrance. Don't look me in the eye, and the maid will pay you kind of uh, attitude. But right. you, as, as they go on and they're able to do incredible works of art that everybody envies and everybody wants, suddenly these People start becoming artists, and they be start uh, becoming celebrities. Is that what you found? Was it the quality of their work that just made them be able to demand more respect or higher pay, or or was that just a transition uh, that that was probably going to happen anyway? But I do love and I do find fascinating that their their status changes because of their ability, and some of them are keenly aware of it, and so they do get a little more haughty, if you will.
2: Yeah. Well. Um, that's a really good question and it, it, I definitely found that too. And I mean, even if mm-hmm. you think about somebody like Brunelleschi, he, right. he, he, he was not, you know, a noble educated type. Right. He, he was, a, you know, an engineer who managed to figure out stuff that nobody else could figure out. And in mm-hmm. doing that made Florence proud and made Florence the envy of other places. Right. And, and, so so I've, I, mean, what do I know? But it, it feels to me like some of the change of status came from the ability of these artists to confer, ah, praise and gotcha. you know gather get, get a lot of attention for what mm-hmm. they'd done that then everybody else could bask in. Right. Leonardo um, okay. to me is a slightly different case in that mm-hmm. he, I mean, I would say a lot of, a lot of a lot of Renaissance artists still were, you know, by the, you know, by the real humanist scholars were still considered craftspeople. They were really, right. really good craftspeople, hmm. but right. you, know, you, could, you could dismiss them as not very educated when it came to, you know, how well they knew uh, their Cicero or something. And Does that mean they had Leonardo their place was, in
1: society? Exactly. Oh, sorry. Yeah. It's like, this, yeah, you're good at what you do, but this is where you are in society. Don't try to be like your betters. Exactly, I, and, okay. and
2: and right. and Leonardo, I feel like you see it in his notes and some of the writings from the time when he was in when he got to Milan and was trying mm-hmm. to inject himself into the court at Milan. Right. Um, there are all these kind of preening types, <laughs> scholars who are surrounding the Duke of Milan, right. who really wanted to compete with all these classic classic humanists in Florence, and right. they dismiss him because he has these aspirations of. Um, Using his art and using art to access an understanding of the universe that will improve upon what the ancients knew and what even people right. today knew. And they dismiss him because you know he he doesn't know you know what Cicero wrote, or he doesn't understand right. you know Greek theories about um, the human body. And mm-hmm. Leonardo keeps, you know, in his notes, he keeps on talking about you. all well, they, you know, they know their books, but I know experience, mm. and that exactly. to me seems like a really important shift. Right. He, he was. Good point.
0: He was treated very much like podcasters are treated today. <laughs> like we're, we're, we're relegated <laughs> to the dark corners of the world. People, You're not wrong. people criticize us that we get all of our information from books and stuff like mm-hmm. that,
2: but in fact, it's the supreme art.
0: Yes, we know that. Yes, yeah, we go. We, yeah, we. <laughs> there's um, a coffee mug. Uh, yeah. Let's let's go talk ahead. about why the drawing continues to resonate with people today. I mean, you you indicated earlier that you suspect it had layers of context to it in Leonardo's mind and perhaps to his contemporaries in his time that we may, particularly members of the general public today looking at it, may not have un- any understanding of. For most of us, it's just a, it's a drawing of a guy in a circle uh, with four legs. Um, but yet it continues to be, as you said at the beginning of our chat, probably the most famous drawing in the world and people, it's on a million T-shirts and coffee mugs and posters and on the Euro and all these sorts of things. What
2: makes it so compelling to modern people viewers do you think i don't have a good answer i, w- I wish i did because mm-hmm. it it clearly i think it's an easy the con- the the image is very condensed and potent and right. and it's easy to um have it be a signifier of everything that you know about leonardo and like culturally leonardo means something and mm-hmm. he means something today that's different from what he meant 200 years ago when people weren't thinking about him that much, but you know, like there's a cult of Leonardo that arose, you know, probably a century ago and has never gone away. And, you know, for good reason, he's, he's an amazing guy, but right. you know, it's like, uh, it's, it's some very potent little signifier in the same way that the Mona Lisa is mm-hmm. for everything that we think about when it comes to Leonardo. And then because it's more sciencey, than the Mona Lisa, mm. it's easy to attach it to, um, you know, everything that we have decided has grown out of the Renaissance and out of Europe as, uh. you know, as, as people have done more and more of what Leonardo was doing at that time, you know, mm. and again, this isn't what people see in the image, but it's what really gets me interested in the image. In a lot of ways, it's him looking backwards, not forwards. And what, right. what, what the image represents is a leaving behind of a lot of what's in that picture in order to move forward and do all the things that we associate with him and then with modern mm-hmm. science. Right. Um, but that, you know, what, what a lot of people, including me, still see in it today. Is all the forward looking stuff, but it's kind of cool that it works both ways. That's right. a really. It's, yes. a,
0: hmm.
2: it's probably my best guess at trying to explain it. I don't, I don't know. Something that was good. people just love to look at. Yeah,
0: that's, yeah, yeah. I think
2: that there's
0: some really, um, really interesting insights there. I mean, I, I think when we did our episodes on it, I said uh, when I was trying to answer the same question, like it, it I think it does sort of. Even if you know nothing about it, it it seems to convey this uh, intersection of art and science somehow because <laughs> of the positioning of it and, and there's something about the aesthetics of it, there's something not only of the character himself and the intensity of his stare. Do you think it's a self-portrait, mm-hmm. by the way? I read in a number of books people think it might have been a self-portrait.
2: Um, so... In my, I in some sense, I do. In some sense, I don't. I, like Because it's a Vitruvian man, he had to adhere to a lot of, you know, Vitruvian principles of proportion that are, you know, wouldn't have corresponded to anybody in the world. Right. So, he, like, he wasn't doing a portrait of himself in that sense. I can't help feeling like, like, like I don't think that, I don't think the image would be popular in the way it's popular if there were a different face. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, you know, the face alone, I think actually explains a lot of it. It's insane. It's I actually. think, I think the face is the one place where it may be that there's a good deal of Leonardo in it. And mm. I tried to make that case in the book a little bit. I mean, you can, you can see some, you know, possible contemporary portraits of him that mm. look quite a lot like that. And there's some descriptions of him that look a lot mm. like that, but more than anything, I mean, it, like the, the literal physical self portraiture to me is less significant than like, when I look at it, I think of it as self portrait because I think of him thinking about that picture and looking at that picture and looking at himself in that picture. And, you know, basically looking at his whole enterprise of trying to understand the, the, the microcosm and the macrocosm that like, that's, that's his, um, that's his game. And, mm, yeah you know, the, It's kind of fun to think of looking at that picture as, um, you know, a a kind of visual um, shorthand of the philosophy that's guiding him.
1: Mm. Yeah. Can can I just take everything that you two just said and put it into a weird uh, image? If I went to an ad agency and I said I want you to come up with a single image, I want people to think of the Renaissance, science, ancient times. Philosophy, the perfect man, religion, maybe. I don't, to me, if I, not that I've written a book, Cam, but to answer your, to try to answer your question, it's almost like it's the perfect thing that generates so much thought, that represents so much, and yet it's just a single drawing. It's mm. an incredibly good drawing with an incredibly, that's, mm. it's got eyes and it's got a face that really draws you in, but it seems to be like the perfect ad campaign to represent so much. I think maybe that's why it resonates with people even to this day that's just a guess based off what you two have just said a couple of minutes ago. You think Barry
0: and and Stan cooked it up as much as Barry and
1: Stan said, I got it. I got it. We have have fake uh, ad people that work for us and they're great, by the way, if you ever want to hire them. But no, it's literally like, this is the perfect thing that represents that encompasses Uh, so much. And that's probably why. But
2: in the book, I reproduce a very Vitruvian man-like image that was drawn right around the same time by right. a guy who Leonardo called a best friend, and I overlaid them together in the book. They, they're clearly related, mm, but right. Leonardo's is, is you know the, the vastly more affecting one, and I think if you look at the other image, it's a generic face, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. kind of face that you see in countless mm. illustrations from the period good point and, and i just you yeah. know if that that face had been on this figure and this otherwise it had been identical i just don't think it would have caught on there's hmm. there's just something about that um yeah, yeah it's it a, like it's a marriage of the very particular and the universal and you don't right. and, and, and in these others there are images right. of the universal hmm.
0: sure. right. race race theory when we did our episode on it was the, the leonardo's friends did their versions after they had gone and and uh you know, got themselves a copy of Vitruvius. Leonardo saw those and he went, hold my beer. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can do this. Give me an hour. Hold my beer. beer. I'll be be right back. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let me show you how it's
1: done, boys. Um, Boom, he came five minutes later, slapped it on the desk. (laughs) So go ahead.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He took his, uh, he took the the money out the pot that was on the table and and that was it. (laughs) Next round's on you, boys. Um, (laughs) <laughs> All right, just to wrap it up, it's been a, I think a decade or so since your book came out. Mm. How do you feel about uh, the drawing and, and more broadly, Leonardo these days? Uh, is, is he still a part of your life? Because we've been mm. we've been doing episodes on Leonardo for over a year now. It was supposed to be like yeah. we. Most of our mini biography things, and I think it's like six episodes, and we've been doing. I think we've done twenty-five episodes of Leonardo now, and we're we're halfway through. We're still, he's still in Milan. Yes,
1: uh, yes, and so he's
0: a large part of, of our lives. We think about him. I think about him every day. Um, what role does he play in your life? Has he as he left? Uh, have you moved on to other things, or are you still sit around going, "What would Leonardo do"? <laughs>
2: He, he crosses my mind a lot, and in fact, you know, I have all of my Leonardo books in my office still, and there are times when I just pull one off the shelf because I want to look at some of the things that he was mm-hmm. doing at a, any given moment, and, um, and I, you know, I, felt, I feel like I spent enough time with his stuff that what I got to a place where what I, what I most liked imagining was just him on his own struggling to figure stuff out. And we can all relate to that. But then he's, here's this guy who could, you know, like d- dissect a skull, take a brain out. As soon as he takes the brain out, the brain just slops everywhere. But yeah. and yet he can then come up with this like perfect, um, you know, like cutaway view of what it would be like before it all slithered out. So he had this ability, and you know, some of his some of his aerial maps you know, Mm -hmm. he was not flying around in a balloon or a plane, Mm -hmm. but he was able to produce these maps of what a city would look like from above that you think that, you know, were taken by a drone or something. Um, right. And so I, you know, the, the flights of imagination are, are really where I just find, you know, it's inspiring anytime you just want to, want to revisit them. Um, I can't say that I'm doing anything more on him. I Mm didn't. I did. I spend a lot of my time as a freelance editor and I did edit a book that was uh, done by a scholar at the university of Virginia who was writing about Leonardo and optics. And that was Mm -hmm. just two years ago. Um, So I got to immerse myself in all that. I mean, she was, she was tracing a lot of the, um, a lot of what was known at the time about optics, which came through a lot of the Arab scholars Mm -hmm. um and that leonardo you know was very busily involved in and again you know like he was interested in optics because he really needed to understand exactly what light was doing so that he could paint his paintings better and he was painting his paintings well because you know if he could really do that that was philosophy it wasn't just art Mm, (laughs) And, and philosophy was science and seemed like it was all something really cool and you know we've lost that because it's so much specialization today but it's kind of yeah fun to put yourself back in that mindset Mm.
1: so So. based on i'm sorry based on what you just said it sounds like cam and i should become experts at everything because we do podcasts on history if we go by the leonardo rule Mm. we should learn everything Mm. so then we can do a podcast on everything and do it really well Well, that's why Uh, we're podcasters thank you
2: you. (laughs) is it Mm. Start, Sorry. start. I should do, have known. Do an episode Sorry. on the tongue of the woodpecker. That was one thing you had <laughs> at one point.
1: <laughs> There's at least twenty five
0: episodes right there. Yeah. So anyway. right, right. And how dragonflies' wings move. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. mark. Um, no so, uh, uh, any any exciting project you're working on at the moment, Toby? That uh, you can with our
2: appetite with. I wish I, I haven't landed on a new book idea in part, you know, I've, I've got three daughters who are, you know, moving out of the house now. So i with any luck, I'll be getting back to things. I've been yeah. lately, I've been reading about um, Columbus's son, Hernando. Do you know about him at all? Um, no. Amazing. Uh, really? Unfortunately, somebody's just written a great book about him, but oh. um, it's, uh, he created the biggest library in Europe. And, you know, it seems like oh, wow. he gave up, he, he was involved in Columbus's fourth voyage and, mm-hmm. um, you know, was a, a big proponent of his father's, but spent his life traveling around Europe, collecting books, and notably, not just collecting, um, you know, fancy expensive books, but ephemera too, you know, all sorts of printed stuff that most people wouldn't have thought to collect at that time and he collected so much of it that he had to confront all of these problems of how to sort it and how to enable people to find it. And, um, I mean, it's really, really interesting. If if you're interested, there's, the book is called the, um, catalog of shipwrecked books. Um, Edward, uh, Edward Wilson Lee. Okay. Um, so it, yeah.
1: It sounds like we owe uh, Christopher Columbus's son uh, a debt, a gratitude. I mean, anybody's going around collecting books, you know, especially at that time. So Yeah.
2: Well, and he, and he was, you know, trying to figure – he came up with, you know, like, how do you do – you, do you stack books? Do you put them on their size? And then right. what do you put on them? And how do you know you – know, like, are they supposed to all be alphabetical? All these things that we just take right. for granted now. He was hmm. – pioneering and wow. um, it's the really preservation yeah hmm. yeah really
0: interesting that's why abba wrote the song so, about him can you hear he the did? drums hernando when you're looking exactly. at the books that sit upon <laughs> your wooden shelf so,
1: <laughs> is that considered library <laughs> science or is that more the organization of books but anyway i i, I digress
0: all right so. well, well, Toby, we've taken enough of your evening, uh, I think. Thank you again so much for coming on and uh, sharing your experiences and your thoughts on Vitruvian Man and Leonardo with us. It was a great pleasure to have you on, and hopefully uh, your prediction that it was a pleasure to be on uh, was fulfilled.
2: Well, I was going to say that. I can now say it was with you know, <laughs> hindsight that indeed it was, it was a pleasure. pleasure. And for the listeners
1: out there, the person whoever you got to read it for Audible for the audio version did a great job. I really enjoyed uh, listening to that walking the dog. So,
2: can I can I tell you just one last funny thing with Please. my first book which which was longer mm-hmm. and involved people from more countries um right. <laughs> when they did the Audible version of it, they they hired a great guy but they didn't send me a copy, so eventually I called them and said, "Could I get a copy? I just want to, you know, have this." Yeah. And the woman said, "Oh, what's your name again?" Okay. And I'm clacking <laughs> on the computer, and then it's she and she said, "Oh, Toby Lester. Oh, I know. We hate you." <laughs> <laughs> and it was because they, they, uh, the the reader of the book had to you know read German names and Latin names and Spanish names <laughs> and Portuguese names and African names. Uh, <laughs> That's not your yeah. fault. Yeah.
1: Oh my God.
2: Sorry. Anyway. Sorry, I wrote a book. Sorry.
1: <laughs> well, I'm yeah. sure it's, it's great, but I just want to let you know the audio, the reader on the second one, bang up job. Great. Excellent.
0: And we'll give it a yeah. plug, another plug for people out there. Well, the, both books, the fourth part of the world is your book about uh, maps and Da Vinci's Ghost is the book about Vitruvian Man. Both uh, terrific uh, popular history mm-hmm. books. Um, you know, go out, get them, read them. You'll, you'll, you'll love them. As you okay. love us. Um, for, I, I don't know why I okay. said that. They don't love us. Uh, they, yeah. treat us they treat us horribly. Um, thank you again so much, Toby. Have a good night. Stay safe. You too.
2: Take care. Thanks.